Good morning. God bless you. This is uh, a day that our family has been waiting for for a long, long time. My name is Jeff. Some of you know me. If you know me and I'm preaching today, my apologies to you. And if you don't know me, also my apologies to you. Um, My wife and I left four years ago uh, to begin ministry in San Diego, where I'm the associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church. But for three years... We were received by this body of Christ while I was a student at Gordon-Conwell, and we were received warmly. And um, let me just tell you, there are a few blessings that were so concentrated in my life, in Greta's life as well, as the three years that we spent in this community. I learned deeply how to trust, um, trust in a, a mentor and a pastor, at least I thought I trusted him until I sat yesterday in an inner tube behind the speedboat that he was driving. I guess I still am putting my my soul in his his hands in some ways. Um, My wife, unfortunately, can't be here today. She's sick, and so she's back at the Albies resting. But uh, you may have seen my daughters, Ramona, who's six, and Gloria, who's four years old. So it's a joy to be with you. As Troy and I were talking about what... um, word the Lord has for you today, there was a passage that was resonating with me, and here's why. Because when Paul and Silas and Timothy write to the church in Thessalonica, their message is something along the lines of, what you're doing is good and godly. Your your work of faith And your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope, what you have going for you as far as the Holy Spirit's work in your church, this is good. We're not going to stand in the way of it. Instead, continue to do so more and more. And so you hear Paul and Silas and Timothy using this mantra, do so more and more. And Paul will say things like, you have no need for anybody to remind you of this, but I'm going to go ahead and remind you of this. You have no need for anyone to write to you about this. And then Paul writes to them about this. In my family, we call this mother mouth. Because when my mom and dad were taking me to the airport to drop me off so that I could could head back to college, my mom started spouting off all of these reminders that weren't necessarily new information. And they'd start with a line something like, I know you know this, but because I love you, I'm going to tell you again. You have to clean your lint filter in the dryer. Mercy, you're going to start a fire in college. And when choice quickly makes you cookies or when Dan picks you up to go to church, you make sure you thank them and be there early on the cab uh, on the curb, by the way. I know that you already know this, but because I love you, I'm going to tell you anyway. And my mom would say, I've got my mother mouth going when she was saying this. This is Paul and Silas and Timothy's mother mouth. I've seen your work of faith. Go deeper in it. We've seen the labor of love, the brotherly love that you have as a congregation. Invite the Holy Spirit to grow it. We believe the steadfastness of hope you have that Jesus will come and that you will not be judged among those that receive God's wrath, but receive the salvation of Christ. Grow in this hope. Mother mouth. So as we hear God's word today, may you receive the reminders, the loving reminders of the Holy Spirit. Grace Prez, you're a gifted congregation. You are blessed by God. Now do this more and more. Grow in these gifts. So will you join me in reading from 1 Thessalonians, 
starting in chapter 4. And I'll be reading from verses 9 through 12. Let us stand in honor of God's word. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit in your word. And Lord, as it's declared today, we pray that you would move your people, that you would send us and that you would confirm the promises to your one holy Catholic apostolic church. You would make us of one mind in Christ as we receive these words. You would make us of one mission to the world as we receive these words. And Lord, you'd help us to unpack the direct application you have in our personal lives. We thank you that no detail is unimportant to you. In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. understand a bit of the context of where this passage is coming from. If you were to turn to the table of contents in a book, it would give you this nice outline of what to expect. In the same way, in this letter, Paul and Silas and Timothy give us this nice sandwiched outline of what they're going to be going through in five chapters. What they say is, every time we pray for you, small church in Thessalonica, a relatively major city in the province of Upper Greece, Macedonia. When we pray for you, we thank God. Why? Because we see three things. Your faith, your hope, and your love. And they're going to unpack them in this order. First of all, your work of faith. When we started you as a church plant and we left, what we saw was direct opposition to your faith. And so the big question was, is your faith actually going to last? Will it be resilient in the face of affliction and opposition? Those of you that have read the book of Acts, you know the kind of trial that Paul and Silas and Timothy had in the church of Thessalonica as people from Philippi come over and they have to leave quickly. Well, they don't hear the last part of the story of, is that church going to hold up? And so they send young Timothy to go up and check on Thessalonica. And Timothy brings them a favorable favorable report. Timothy says, get this, Silas and Paul. Not only does the church still stand and is the faith growing, but the faith of that church in Thessalonica is known in the entire province of Macedonia. Timothy is is implying that he has heard news from other cities within that major province that Thessalonica's faith is strong. It is endured through opposition. Their work 
of faith. That's how this letter is going to open, the first three chapters or so. And then the last chapter is going to be dedicated to what Paul and Silas call steadfastness of hope. What is hope? A firm conviction in in the promises of God that are yet to be consummated. And so, as Paul and Silas are defining, here's what your steadfastness looks like. You are awaiting the day of Christ. Now grow in it more and more, right? Mother mouth. You have this hope, deepen it. Right now, they might be a little shaky on, what about those who are Christians, who have died in Christ? I thought Jesus was to come back and consummate his kingdom, to bring the renewal of his creation before anybody died. What is it? Why are people dying that are in Christ? And Paul and Silas says, those people who are in Christ, they will be the first to rise from the dead, to meet Jesus as he comes back. They'll be the first, and we'll follow them. So remain in this hope, your steadfastness of hope. So we see this work of faith, steadfastness of hope. And then right in the center, our passage that we have today, is your labor of love. Corinthians, Colossians talk about faith, hope, love. We see them again. Faith, hope, love. When we understand the Ten Commandments, the the law of God, it's a love of God and a love of neighbor. And at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul talks about the first one, love of God. You have already been taught how to please God. Here's what it looks like. Your moral sanctification. For you to be pure in heart and body. That God has meant you for holiness, not impurity. Don't live the way that the heathens do. Your body belongs to the Lord. So honor him in the way that you use your body. That's what it looks like practically to love God. Have you ever thought about that? How am I going to love God today? The way that I treat and use and think about my own body and others' bodies is a way of loving our creator. And then we get to our passage today. Love of God and love of neighbor. Now concerning brotherly love. Thessalonica, Grace Presbyterian South Shore. You have no need for anyone to write to you. We've seen it. In fact, it's God taught. It's something God has taught you. Those of you that have studied that passage, all scripture is God-breathed, where Paul sort of invents a Greek word here, God-breathed. He does it again in this passage. You have been God-taught. It's God's special lesson to that church in Thessalonica of how to live with love toward your brothers and sisters. Philadelphia, brotherly love. And when Paul employs this word, brotherly love, It's the first time in ancient literature that that is used outside of an immediate family context. Does he make a mistake here? No, no, no. Silas, that's not what this word means. Or do they mean it deliberately? The brotherly love is not just a feeling of affection you have towards someone. But it is a stake you have in a relationship. When you're in family with their family, it means I help supply for their need when they're in a time of need. And I expect that they'll supply for mine when I am. That's brotherly love. Have you noticed when you read the book of Acts, 
whenever there's a move of the Holy Spirit, what you see happening at the same time is the it says something like this. The community or the church had everything in common. And you hear examples like Barnabas, who sells his field to give his money to those who need it. His brothers and sisters are in need. He will meet their need. 2 Corinthians 8 talks about, you know why you have supply? So that you can supply for those who are in need. So that they, in your future need, will meet yours. That's brotherly love. And it's a spiritual gift that the church in Thessalonica has. Grace Prez, when I was talking to Pastor Troy, before we moved to Boston, I was going to be doing an internship here, possibly, and the question of how am I going to lead youth group when it's about an 80-minute drive without traffic? How's that going to work? Well, we thought, maybe, what if it's on a Saturday night? And then, while I'm not talking to Troy, I'm having conversations with Greta about Maybe this would work if we were to plead some family on the South Shore if we could possibly spend a night with them. So we spend Saturday night here after doing youth group, and we come to church on Sunday morning. That might work. Let's throw it out to Troy. Okay, you go to Troy. You talk to him about this. All right, you pray for me while I'm talking to Troy about this. (laughs) I pick up the phone, and I call Troy. I tell him what I think. He says, brother, we've already talked about that. There's already a handful of families that have volunteered. And so for three years, we were, how did we get knit into this community? Because we had a need, and you supplied for your brothers and sisters. Today, we're driving around in a borrowed van from the Nawazowskis, thank you very much. But what I understand is that there were families that didn't even know us, that volunteered their van for our use, even though they didn't even know us. Friends, you have been God-taught of how to love each other. And believe it or not, you're going to you're like us. If you are to leave this church and go somewhere else planted, you're so spoiled. Because every time you, every time you get locked out of your car, you think you're supposed to call your pastor instead of AAA. <laughs> this church will, for, I mean, for communion, those of you that were here pre-COVID, what? you're used to home-baked bread when you would come to the communion table. If you go to Chick-fil-A, you think that your youth group works there and you should get a discount. <laughs> You will be spoiled because this church, just like Thessalonica, has been God-taught. It's a special corporate gift. And I remember Troy, as we were leaving, he said, as far as hospitality goes, the Holy Spirit has gifted this church in a unique way. Nobody does it like Grace Prince. Friends, I have the same message to you. Grow in it. Do this more and more. I don't have new information. I'm just reminding you of the gospel. That your power to continue in this comes from the Holy Spirit. Be reminded of this. Grow in it. And isn't that what salvation is? Isn't that God's plan for us? That the gospel is always the same and always different. We hear it. We're changed by it preliminarily. And then we have to be refreshed in it every day of our lives following. It's like looking at a waterfall where it's the same and different every single moment. When you stand before the Lord justified in Jesus because of that once and for all sacrifice, it's upon Jesus' merits once and for all. Justification is once and for all. Sanctification is more and more, deeper and deeper. Grow in this. You have no one to teach you these things, but let me teach you these things.
So how do we grow, first of all, and what will be the implications of growing in brotherly love? How do we grow in brotherly love, and what will be the implications? Well, that's what Paul and Silas answer next in this passage. I'm actually going to go to the very end where the implications are this. If you grow in brotherly love, if you grow, what that means is that you are walking properly before outsiders and you're dependent on no one. If you grow in brotherly love, what that means is you walk properly toward outsiders, non-Christians. There is an evangelistic emphasis and power with growing in brotherly love. Hmm. It's not just for the brothers and sisters here, but for those outside, they'll actually notice something that's distinct, salty, full of light, the way that Jesus was put it, in this world. And not only that, you will be dependent on no one. All right, so the stakes are high. Why? Because everyone we have influence on, they're always going to be in one of two audiences, outside the church or inside the church. And Silas and Timothy and Paul are telling us right here that your brotherly love for each other, how you do it, which he's going to get to, is going to have implications for everyone you meet in life. For those that don't know Christ, you're going to be the aroma of Christ. And for those that do know Christ, you're going to build them up and supply for them because you won't be dependent on them. All right, so how do we grow in brotherly love? You become a missionary. No, that's not exactly what he says. You go to seminary. That might be in the footnote, but I don't see that there. It's interesting. Paul and Silas and Timothy start talking about work, your work life. How you do in life. Now, those of you, this is paid or unpaid, friends. All of you work. Stay-at-home moms and dads in the room. You can give a witness to this if you like. You work harder than anybody. You know you do. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying, this is how your brotherly love is going to be developed. How you go deeper in this gospel truth, the implications in your life, in order to be seen by those outside the church and not to be indebted to anyone within the church, here's how you do it. Focus on the way that you work. And here's what he says. Three things about it. I'm looking at verse 11. Live quiet lives, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Now, first of all, those of you that have made this part of the verse Mind your own affairs, your favorite memory verse. Get your nose out of my beeswax, mind your own affairs. First Timothy chapter four, look at first Thessalonians chapter four, look it up. Remember that the context is brotherly love. This passage cannot be used to justify the statement, I have no accountability to you. Mind your own affairs. That's not at all how they're using it here. Instead, this is the bolster brotherly love within the church. And the very first thing you hear is, aspire to live quietly. This word, aspire, you can think of it like a political campaign or somebody applying for a job. You have upward mobility. You're aspiring. You make great of being little. Aspire to live humbly. Be restless in the pursuit of rest. Make much of being less. 
That's the unextraordinary, extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit in God's people. Aspire to live quietly. So if we were to put one word with this, we would call this peace. We would call this rest, shalom. You are being provided for, and so your soul is at peace. Friends, if if there are cultural idols that we need to just be aware of, as we're reading this in our own context, it is the constant pursuit of bigger and better. And I have to tell you, as an associate pastor, I grapple with this as well. When are you going to become a senior pastor? I can't tell you how many conversations I have like that. Well, I have to wrestle with goodness. The call of God on my life has nothing to do with a promotion. It has nothing to do. God might see fit to keep me exactly where I am. And he might see fit to keep you exactly where you are. But the, the desire for bigger and better, that more paycheck must always be better. That more square footage must always be better. That a, a bigger title or more letters before your name because you've earned another degree must always be better. Friends, that is not what Paul and Silas and Timothy are describing here. And it won't necessarily lead to brotherly love. It might. We'll see what God does. But I will tell you, the reason that the world is spinning and spinning and spinning and you talk to people who are just discontent in life is because they have not found the peace that the gospel affords us. The peace that says God is your security and God is your significance. And there's nothing in life that will either either increase that or cause it to be shaken. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, if you want to talk about a satire on idols, read Isaiah. He is hilarious when he talks about, look, the idols that you see people parading through life. By the way, an idol is whatever you think is going to give you significance and security other than God. That's your idol. Okay? And they parade these idols through the streets. And the idol is actually a physical thing, right? It's made of wood or it's made of rock or it's made of gold. And as they're parading it through the streets, it's being borne on the shoulders of an ox and on donkeys. And Isaiah describes it as the donkeys are burdened down. The oxen are straining. Here's the irony. Isn't an idol supposed to carry you? Isn't the idol supposed to be the God all-powerful? And yet what you see is beasts of burden, mindless animals, are carrying these things around. And then you hear Isaiah say, but I, I am the Lord. And you know what I do? I carry you. And this is, this is the world that we walk out into every day, friends, that we see people's backs are burdened and they're strained and they think they're going to get significance by bearing too many hours a week by living in dysfunctional relationships because they think that somehow they have to atone, that they are bearing this idol and they're being crushed and the, the burden of the gospel or the burden is lifted when the gospel speaks, I am the Lord who has always carried you. I bear you on my shoulders. I bear you on my wings. I give you the strength that you need. That's the freedom that comes with the peace of the gospel. And what are we able to do then? What's our aspiration in life? What do I live for? I live to be made less. For Jesus to increase and me to decrease. For him to be glorified and me to sit and wait upon his word. That my action is waiting on his action. That's what it means to live a quiet life. But secondly, mind your own affairs. 
And if there's any word that we would put to this, if we have peace for living quietly, this would be focus. Say it with me. Peace. Peace. Focus. Focus. Mind your own affairs. If you think of a garden that needs to be tended, friends, you and I do not get the whole garden. We get a plot of that garden. And by trying to focus on other plots that have not been given to us by the Lord, what we end up doing is neglecting the one and only plot that we've been given authority over. There's a great book that I read in the midst of COVID called What's Best Next? What's Best Next? And it's got some great just systematic theology of work. How do we work as Christian people? And the author says this, get this. Those of you that have lived through COVID, the great nemeses of godly productivity, ready? The great enemies of godly productivity are ambiguity and overload. Ambiguity and overload. In other words, our enemies when it comes to productive work are we don't know what we're supposed to do. Ambiguity. And overload, taking on more than what is our fair share. COVID, anybody? As we've, ambiguity was relentless. We had no idea how we were supposed to, I didn't know as a pastor, how are you supposed to minister to people when I can't see people? How do I do this? I can pray for them, I get, you know. It was so, I felt so aimless and purposeless, right? And then when we come out of COVID, now what we've tried to do is all of the disciplines that we learned how to do in COVID and everything we did before COVID, now we feel like we've got to do all of it. Overload. And so once again, this burden of trying to be places we're not actually called to be and questions about discerning, where is my garden plot, Lord? Where is it? And Paul is saying a focus on what is ours and only ours. Now, once again, that has to come from this peace. The very first thing I think that my senior pastor told me when I, when I preached at First Pres, when I first got there, I was just slaving away in my study trying to, trying to understand what this text meant. And Jerry came in and he said, God gets his work done. God gets his work done. And friends, 40 years ago that went on my whiteboard. God gets his work done. It has not left my whiteboard. Because I need to remember, I don't have to be every place in the garden. I need to be where God has called me to be. And what's the reassurance? God's going to get his work done. For those of you that love the band, Cademan's Call, there's this great line in one, of the, in one of the songs that says, we put the walls up, but Jesus keeps them standing. He doesn't need us, but he lets us put our hands in. God doesn't need us to get his work done. It's a privilege to be called into it. And so you and I can have peace and focus about what it is that the Lord has called us to it's interesting, first and, first and second Thessalonians, these are short letters, but there's one topic that comes up over and over and over and over again to the Thessalonians. And you know what it is? Idleness. Different than idolatry. Idleness. The way that Paul and Silas talk about it, you are busy, but you're busy bodies. That means you're doing stuff all the time. You're high in activity, but you're low in focus. And so you're here, there, and everywhere. And so he says things like, admonish the idle. Tell them. Find your focus and find your garden plot. 
So say it with me. Peace. Peace. Focus. Focus. And then lastly, here we go. Diligence. 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 Because there we get to this point where he says, work with your hands, just as we instructed you. Uh, Some translations will say, work with your own hands. That kind of has to do with the focus element. But work with your hands. I believe what Paul and Silas are getting at is humble work. Remember that for a Greek audience, manual labor was subservient. And if you were in an upper class, you would never prepare your own meal. You would never tend your own field. You would never carry your own load. No way. That's the job of a slave. And one writer, Plutarch, says, you know, we love perfumes, but we hate the people that make the perfumes. We love dyes, but those people who make dyes, lower class. We could do without them, but we like the stuff that they produce. That's how Greeks thought about manual labor. But Jews were different. Jews knew that the earth that God has given us was good, and so we're meant to invest in it. And that's why you had every Jewish boy in school learning a trade. That even your rabbis, Paul, is a leather worker, a tent maker. Jesus is a carpenter. What do you think he was doing for 20 years of silence in the Bible? He was perfecting a trade. He was doing good and peaceful and focused and diligent and humble work. Because that's what God has called his people into. Again, when we moved to Boston, my wife had been, uh, she had finished six years of teaching English. She was teaching AP um, English at at a Christian school in Seattle. And then she's five months pregnant when we move here, right? And so we're looking for a job that she can do while keeping Ramona close by. And she becomes a nanny. And so as I'm a student, she's putting me through school by nannying. And so she, masters in teaching, she's putting crackers and cheese together. Six years of teaching AP English, uh, British literature, she's ironing dresses. And what she found was, if I could just do a snapshot on it, the way that Greta says it is God cares more about your soul than about your resume. And actually the kind of humble, diligent, lowly work is actually what causes us to find our significance, not in our profession, but in Christ alone. Those of you that feel, who signed me up for this? Parents, that every day you're like, this is the nastiest stuff I've ever had to deal with. Or those of you that have been in a job that you feel is going nowhere. Friends, you are blessed. The kind of work that God has called you into, you're promised here that that is actually something that speaks to the culture outside and causes brotherly love within the church. Focus, peace, diligence, friends, this is how you love one another. I want to close with this story. When we came to Boston, uh, we started a road trip that was going to take 10 days from Seattle to Boston. We did some camping. You can applaud my wife when you see her for camping when she's five months pregnant. All the way across the U.S., kind of the upper, you know, I-90. And our very first stop We stopped at uh, the Columbia River in central Washington. We're using the bathrooms. 
And behind the bathroom was these air conditioning units or some sort of large machinery. They had a fence around them. And as we're taking in the view, the Columbia River Gorge is right there. There's windmills. The breeze is on our faces. We're feeling nostalgic because we've just left all of our community behind and we're about to drive 3,000 miles east to the people that love the Patriots. <laughs> and we're just taking all this in and the fence, inexplicably, the fence behind this bathroom, highway bathroom, had one piece of graffiti on it. And written right at eye level, in black Sharpie marker, it said, Abide. That message was for me and Greta. We will bear no fruit unless we abide in Christ the vine. Singing that hymn of thanksgiving. Abide with me, a song that we've cherished so deeply. Friends, when we went to San Diego, our pattern for brotherly love, guess where we learned it? From you. That Grace Prez is known not only in New England, but now in Southern California. Because we talk about the gift of God that you have, that you've been God-taught to love and serve others. We have been direct recipients of that. And today, as I sang that song, I was reminded that I'm still a recipient of it this morning. Do this more and more. Who's going to be the next Jeff and Greta? Grow in this. You have no one to lecture you on it. Thank you for letting me lecture you on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled. The task before us, the task to be a blessing to all the world, Lord, it's earth-shattering. So we do pray for the humility, this divine contradiction, that you tell us that we will gain our strength only in acknowledging our weakness and abiding in Jesus. We thank you for the peace that we can have in our work because Jesus says that he and the Father are always working. We thank you for the focus that we can have, Lord, because you are the one who does the work. You are the one who has always carried us. We pray that you would cause this church and every church to burn more brightly, to be saltier and a greater preservative in the world. That, Lord, you would receive glory that we would lift you high in our work lives and at home with our families. That in our loneliness, in our isolation, we would find deep and rich communion with you as those who are feasting on rich and fat food. Lord, we thank you that you have always provided. And for the return to the story of the gospel of how you've provided for us perfectly in the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Help us to do this more and more. Hear us now as we pray to you the prayer that your Son taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father.